Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 24th, 2023. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, directing you to our merch store at commentary.org slash merch. We got shirts, we got mugs, we got tote bags, we got magnets, we got anything you would want branded with our very, not only our logo, we also have our podcast logo, but also our signature phrases, keep the candle burning, and of course, crushing morosity for your sartorial and coffee drinking pleasure. So commentary.org slash merch with me as always in our first full compliment, our first full compliment of phase three of the Commentary Magazine podcast, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Back after three days schlepping her kids around college campuses, media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Okay, one year since Vladimir Putin moved Russian troops across the border into Ukraine in what may be, or we hope, will prove to be the most disastrous uh, military advance in modern history, uh, certainly trending in that direction. Um, and where where things stand this week uh, are that uh, Joe Biden, having begun the week showing up in Ukraine, in Kiev, uh, is ending the week uh, with more commitments, more dollars flowing to, I mean, that he promised, but I mean, more, you know, more statements from the White House about money flowing to Ukraine and more arms going to Ukraine. Um, Janet Yellen yelling at uh, Russian economic officials uh, at a, at a global meeting Um not really her as treasury secretary not really her no one puts janet in the corner john i'm sure the russian i'm sure the russians were quaking in their boots when janet was laying down the law but, but but it was an interesting indication that um the administration is singing from a ukrainian hymnal now and so wherever you are if there's a russian there and you're in the Biden administration you're going to yell at the russian uh, and that's the way things are. And then, of course, there was some kind of meeting between China and Russia, or there is going to be a meeting, or there are statements, and the Chinese are simultaneously offering to negotiate, seeking a ceasefire. And then we get all this um, weird intelligence, these weird intelligence stories, which um, I don't know, they're a little, I wouldn't say sketchy, but they seem a little melodramatic that, you know, China is now about to supply suicide drones to Russia to help them in the war effort. I don't really Well, they're understand. on source, the, the stuff, the, yeah. the pieces I've read that they don't, they don't cite. Right, well, this is from Der Spiegel, so, you know, I don't know who's the mil- But by the way, what exactly is a suicide drone? Like a suicide, a suicide yes, pilot. They're not or sentient, sui- yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has to involve a person, you know, a, a kamikaze mission involves a person crashing a plane into an aircraft carrier or a ship. It doesn't involve a, an unmanned 
object doing what unmanned objects do when they're fired at things, which is explode and then try to explode or kill other things. Yeah, I guess the old the old phrase for a suicide drone would be a precision guided missile. Right. Right. I mean, that's because if a suicide drone is one you can only use once uh, that, well, that was the same thing with the missile. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the whole point about drones is that you can use them. They you fly them right. over and they do something and then you get them back. So you right. can use them again. Right. OK, so suicide drone again, that, that goes. <laughs> Maybe to we should say single of, uh, single use well, drone. <laughs> it may yeah. sound it may sound different in the German. <laughs> right this may be a translation thing because it's the spiegel yeah, but yeah but, and i'm sure yeah. it's, it's logically it's a word that's 52 letters long. Right. that's yeah. the other thing but yeah you're right logically every drone is potentially a suicide drone yeah because you yes. can decide to yes fly it into whatever you want um so i only bring this up and i don't mean to belittle the seriousness of the possibility of a russia uh china alliance to defeat ukraine if that is actually what's going on but um, the fog of war often it often includes um, gamesmanship in which you you know which people throw out all kinds of half baked things they overhear and then throw them into the mix and scare people and uh, but but so where we are a, a year in is that um, uh, the West remains committed to siding with Ukraine. We don't really know what the West's end game idea is and uh the real question is did we ever think we would be here and uh, at this moment with this lineup of people on either side and i sure didn't and i'm not sure i know anybody who did i'm I'm saying the a year ago to this day right you would have figured that you know the Russians would roll up at least some of Ukraine, and that there would be a kind of uh, you know suing for peace, right? That would leave that would leave Ukraine with some kind of like a Vichy state uh, that it could maintain. That would have been like what would you would have thought would be the tragic I, final outcome, and that's not where we are. I've been trying to put myself uh, in the uh, shoes of someone who was alive uh, during 1940 and early 1941, because um, while you say uh, uh, that we never really predicted that the Ukrainians would have done this well or that the the Western alliance would have held and the rearmament of Germany and uh, potential rearmament of Germany and uh, Japan, there have been some developments, including the the news out of China, which uh, which, which are very disturbing. And if we just think about World War II for a second, you know, it's hard actually to know, to say when World War II began. Right? Did it begin with the uh, attack on the Pearl Harbor? Well, not really, because of course, um, a few months before that, Hitler had launched his surprise invasion of his ally. The, the Soviet Union. So, okay, that brought in the conflict. But of course, two years prior to that about, he had invaded Poland. But you can go back even earlier into the 1930s with the Japanese um, launching their conquest of East Asia, occupation of Manchurian, Manchuria. So it's kind of, it, it, when you look at it globally, um, it looks as though World War II is kind of like these different um local conflicts there's again in the 1930s there's the spanish civil war there's the italian fascist invasion of ethiopia then called abyssinia so all of a sudden 
by the time you get to 1941 and American entry into the war, oh boy, you look up and they're all connected. And yeah, when I look at six, seven years of action, right? Exactly. Yeah. You could actually begin with Abyssinia. Like that was mm-hmm. 35. Right. So that's and, six and a half years before we before before Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And I think the first Japanese troops landed in China in 31. Yeah. Right. So so that's 10 years. So uh as I look at the headlines recently, I've kind of had this very foreboding uh, sense because in some ways what Putin you know has been gaining territory since 2008 when he invaded uh, this former Soviet Republic of Georgia then the big push was in 14 when he annexed the Crimea and began his um <clears throat> low intensity conflict in in eastern Ukraine but uh and then the invasion a year ago today the invasion proper of Ukraine but then you look, okay, well, what's happening in East Asia? Well, relations between the United States and China are not going well at all. And what's striking to me is, despite Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, having had a very bad run recently, because the opening uh, of z- the end of zero COVID was a disaster. Uh, he's kind of fed these setbacks. Um, we had this huge balloon crisis. Um he has now committed himself, I think, to a policy of confrontation with the United States and the West. And so you see him getting closer to Russia. Um, You see uh, North Korea, uh, uh, no one's paying attention, but because there's so many other headlines, North Korea is launching missiles like on a daily basis. You know, it's like, what time is it today? Well, it's time for North Korea to launch a missile. Um, And then, of course, there's the Iran crisis. And all four of these powers are now connected and working in unison. And look, they, the Axis in World War II never really, you know, had a joint command structure. But Not we still, all. right, yeah. well, we still connected them. And in some ways, this grouping is more connected right. and, and I, works more closely I just, together. I just want to point, point out uh, one element here to add for this, add to the sense of foreboding. Uh, one aspect of this story that doesn't, uh, make it uh, quite as high on the page as actual details of the war in Ukraine and um, what's happening in Beijing is that Chinese planes have become increasingly aggressive uh, with American uh, uh, jets over the South China Seas, um, provoking them routinely in very brazen ways, warning them off out of out of international airspace. The, the American jets are not doing anything wrong. The, the Chinese jets have used military-grade radar, uh, uh, military-grade lasers on uh, Philippine uh, uh, aircraft. Um, those kinds of uh, provocations have a tremendous p- potential to for miscalculation to wreak all kinds of all, all kinds of havoc. Okay, oh, very reminiscent of Russia's behavior during moments of uh, greater heat during the Cold War too. That was right. exactly what they would do. Right. Let's let, let's talk a little about Iran since we're going to this you know um, apocalyptic uh, you know the 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 world in pre apocalypse um, the, the the news this week is that there is evidence that Iran has um, uh, created weapons grade plutonium for the for, that they are at eighty three percent of maximum. I don't want to go into you know, like 
these numbers like uh when 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 iran was uh, compelled to uh degrade its nuclear stockpile you have to take this material and kind of gin it up uh in in centrifuges so uh, you take it down to three percent of its uh, possible explosive value uh it starts getting into trouble at 20 percent there is apparently some material that has now been has now been uh, brought up to an 83% level um and news stories have the uh israelis uh, everyone being focused on israel because of its domestic political crisis that meanwhile while all this is going on with people in the streets protesting the horrible authoritarianism supposedly of uh, bibi netanyahu and his new coalition uh, they're hunkering down making plans to attack iran so let's just take let, let's just say that you know um israel cannot allow iran to get to a fully weaponized condition in 2023 uh and has been doing all kinds of stuff over the course of the last 15 years to do whatever they can to slow and retard this process if the centrifuges are spinning if the iaea isn't going in and looking and getting a sense of all this which it is no longer and all of that um we could be seeing something very very big and unprecedented that happens there and again this is matt's alliance you know neo-axis of evil russia china north korea iran all of which are are working aggressively uh against american and western interests though in a fashion that is more complementary in a weird way than you would than you would think they would be um uh, just so happens that you know maybe this is the horrible result of becoming the unipower the united states is that is that it then maybe occurs to people though of course we have nato doing all sorts of wonderful stuff in ukraine so i don't want to you know i don't want to belittle the european contribution but um if people say okay you poke them here i'll poke them here we'll poke them over here and then we go after their proxy israel over here with a not very um flexible president who is on the ball reacting quickly to problems that come up unexpectedly like east palestine ohio um you know we're this is a very incendiary potential situation can i add two more doom doom points because yeah. we've neglected to mention we've just decided to send more troops to Taiwan, a signal that we understand the, the growing Chinese threat. But long-term wise, in the United States, we're ha- we can't even recruit enough Americans to fulfill our military obligations in terms of like a standing army, mainly because we cannot, the, the kids who are of age to be military recruits are obese, have mental health problems or criminal records. We are not meeting recruitment uh, goals in, in all branches of our service. Any foreign power looking looking ahead, and we know in particular that the Chinese strategy for for dominance is that like a 
not a not a five-year plan. This is a much longer-term thing. All they have to do is look at what 10 years hence our military might look like, given the numbers that we have now. So there, we have a kind of domestic army crisis going on right now in terms of ability to recruit and also willingness to join and serve, because a, a, an extraordinary number of young Americans have no, I think it's like 9%, very small number actually express any interest in serving their country in the military. So yes, crushing morosity t-shirts for sale. <laughs> Man, is it a Friday? Store. Well, I, you know, I think Happy this. Friday, yes. I think this highlights the importance of um, helping Ukraine uh, obtain the arms it needs as quickly as possible. Um, uh, we were discussing earlier off offline the uh, Josh Rogan column in the Washington Post today, where he makes the case that time is not on Ukraine's side, and it's precisely because there's this there's two different clocks. There's the Ukraine clock, where Zelensky wants to get all the weaponry he can in order to push and reclaim as much territory as possible in the year ahead. And then there's the Biden clock. And the Biden clock is, we're with you, Ukraine. We're with you for as long as it takes. But, you know, let's not escalate. And I'm going to give you the aid in dribs and drabs. And yes, I've given you $113 billion over the course of the year in military assistance. But, you know, it took me months to give you one Patriot system when the Russians were uh, bombing your hospitals and, and kindergartens, right? And this mismatch, I think, is um, a, a huge weakness of American policy today. Because when you look at this map that we've laid out, which is filled with threats, you would want to contain the most pressing th threat as quickly as possible. And that is the, this ongoing devastating conflict in Ukraine before you have other conflicts like a potential Middle, Middle East war um, uh, as a result of an Israeli strike on Iran, uh, a, a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan, potential uh, craziness from uh, the crazy state of North Korea. It only emphasizes to me that we need to accelerate the systems that we're giving uh, Ukraine in order to allow them to expand um, uh, the territory that they reclaim from Russia. I mean, that is just one final point. I mean, we say, you know, we were very surprised that Russia, the Russian military wasn't able to um, achieve its goals. It, the, you know, it since the counteroffensive last year, uh, where the Ukrainians took back important cities like Kharkiv. It's been a war of attrition. And yeah. the problem with the war of attrition is if you can't outproduce your opponent, um, uh, they have the advantage. And right now, I fear that the Russian, uh, the Russian military uh, um, arm, arms machine with the potential to add on Chinese assistance, even though we're not clear if that's occurring or not, um, poses a big threat to the Ukrainians. Well, and not just armaments, but but soldiers, because we don't actually right. talk a lot about the losses on the Ukrainian side. But they've, uh, you had some estimates put it at over like around one hundred and thirty thousand, if not more, soldiers. That's not even to say the thousands of civilians. I mean, the extraordinary heroism of the Ukrainian people. But that has to be understood in the context that Russia is three times the size of Ukraine. So if they're and, and Russia has lost a similar amount, if not more, of soldiers, but they have more people. So the attrition point is really crucial here because it's not just will they run out of armament, but will they run out of active duty soldiers who can actually fight? I just want to say, well, just to encapsulate yeah. just, uh, another way to put it, which I think um, uh, Rogan did put it this way, is that we are giving the Ukrainians just enough to keep this going. 
um, and, and, and not enough to end it. Right. Well, the other way of looking at it is that um, the weaknesses of the Russian military machine have been exposed. Uh, they are throwing bodies at, at the front with extraordinary casualty numbers, and they too are running out of ammunition. They are in bad shape. They do not have a milit. They do not have a competent military machine. They're using up, you know, armaments and things that they have been building over thirty years and running out of their stocks. So, are we giving them time to reconstitute an industrial strength military machine to resupply the forces that they have? You know, this is a moment at which uh, Matt would say it's not just you want to resupply them, but if the Ukrainians are in a position to deal, it wouldn't be a death blow, but to to just rock the Russians so badly on their heels that they're looking at 10 years just to get back to where they were two weeks after the war started or six weeks after the war started. That's a, a huge opportunity cost we're incurring, not to give the Ukrainians what they need in order. It, we're doing it, you know, on the cheap. That's going to cost us more in the long run with more ambiguous results. So the strategy of arming them is working, has worked over the past year, even with all of its weaknesses. And yeah, and so we're just going to sort of like string them along. And I don't mean string them along because it's like we're doing it, you know, out of the goodness of our heart. I mean, like, we want this over fast. And we're making it difficult for it to be over fast. So it's an interesting place to be a year in to this, you know, unmitigated triumph for the Ukrainian people and the ukrainian nation that it has resisted and put up this unbelievably valiant effort to retard the russian swallowing up of their sovereignty and their peoplehood and you know uh that's when you want to invest more like you know you have proof of result here and yet uh, now i want to go to the Republican side, because the Republicans are not doing what classically they would be doing, and they are giving Biden an out without realizing it. So the classically, the Republican Party would be saying Biden isn't would be saying what I'm saying, right? They're not doing enough. They're you know they're not let, letting Ukraine deal the death blow. But of course, that is not where the Republican Party writ large is. Republican Party is. Leaders in the Republican Party are supportive of the of the you know leaders in the Congress are supportive of the effort in Ukraine, but they don't want to be full throated about it. And then you have all this sort of anti-war talk, and you know sort of footsie anti-war talk like the stuff that um, DeSantis has been doing over the past week, and therefore they are putting no domestic political pressure on Biden to accelerate American shipments of you know lend lease shipments you know 1940 if we're right. if we're going to go back to analogies to the second world war 
you know, we were critical in making sure that Germany did not, you know, did not accelerate its ability to take over the world before we we entered the war by starting to, you know, throw armaments at at you know at places in Europe, uh, and and we're giving them a pat like the Republican Party is giving Biden a pass to look like he's the most hawkish person in the country when Josh Rogan might say, well, we're just not doing enough. Yeah, it's it's, it's an unusual situation because there are plenty of Republicans, including Republicans in leadership positions in House committees and, of course, the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, who are trying to pressure the Biden administration to give more faster. The problem is that the loudest voices in the Republican Party um, and the most prominent names in the Republican Party, including former President Trump, are on the opposite side of the question and arguing for either cutting off assistance in the most extreme cases. Uh, Trump is not really there. He's more like, we need peace now, peace now, negotiations now. Um, and he's the guy to do it. And so this creates this, uh, as you say, this um, it kind of cancels each other out, leaving Biden with basically command of Ukraine policy. You know, I just went back and uh, looked at um, the, the House vote in the spring of 1999 to uh, block any ground troops in the Kosovo war, right? This is a similar, somewhat similar situation. Republicans controlled the House of Representatives. There was a military, this was a direct military invention, uh, intervention on the part of the United States. We were uh, bombing Milosevic uh, because of the 48, 48 day air war. Yeah, because yeah. of the, um, his attacks on the Albanian uh, Kosovars and, or the Serbian Kosovars. And yeah. anyway, it gets complicated quickly. My point is because of partisan, because of partisan reasons and and this long standing uh, kind of nationalist isolationist temptation on the right, uh, you had a similar dynamic in place, which in, to some degree went even f uh, farther than we're seeing now because they actually did vote. <laughs> the House Republicans voted to block ground troops. And then, then when the Democrats put up a resolution to support Clinton's air war, uh, it failed on a tie, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not quite there yet, uh, but we could be if the Biden administration allows this war to continue for, for a year or more, just like Putin wants it to. Well, and that the electorate, I think, has shifted. The, the Republican electorate now is more, I, I would guess, evenly split against the, about the populist isolationists and the sort of normal conservative, pretty strong foreign policy Republicans. And Pew did a survey recently, which showed it's like 40 percent think you know, we're giving enough or maybe even not enough aid to Ukraine, but 40% were like, eh, we should be spending that money at home. Hence, I, I assume you guys talked about Trump's stunt in, in Ohio. I mean, the idea being there's a lot of the, the, the populists are exploiting a an opportunity here to say the Biden administration is cared about. They care about being globalists, you know, giving money to Ukraine. But here at home, we're all suffering. And that is actually a message that worked very well for Trump in 2016. And he's bringing it back in new form. And there are a lot of ways he can overly oversimplify what's going on here. But he's got more people on the GOP side who are finding that message um, appealing, I think, than he did than, than the By isolationists the way, did before. Uh, I think people are finding that message appealing on the GOP side, even if they're not any longer into Trump. Uh, it's not too. just yeah, his that's message. Right. That's right. Well, okay. So 
So let's go back 10 years again, not 80 years, but 10 years to 2013 and ISIS, because uh, in 2013, 60 some odd percent of the American people said we should stop fighting in the Middle East. Uh, then ISIS beheaded two Americans and 60% of Americans said we should destroy ISIS. I bring this up it's 10 years, 10 years is not determinative. You know, you can, a lot can change in 10 years. Um, What's important about those numbers is that they suggest that the American people writ large are um, can are easily affected by circumstance and uh, and these views of things that they don't understand very well or follow very closely are very fluid and can be very fluid such that if the Republican Party or its leaders or there was an actual tussle in the Republican Party over where this should go. Uh, I don't know that the Republican electorate would continue, its support for Ukraine would continue to degrade. What are they hearing from the people that they trust that would lead them to believe that this was a valuable mission? But I, I don't. They, otherwise, they have to believe that Biden is telling them something, and they don't trust Biden, and they don't trust the Democrats. And so, this is a very—it's sort of understandable in that sense that most voters in the United States are low-information voters when it comes to foreign foreign policy. They don't know where Ukraine is. They don't really understand what's going on. They like what they they liked what they saw. It's very a very easy drama, right? Russia just went in to try to you know destroy this country, so you support the effort to not let them do that. But after a year, who are they hearing from that they trust? Uh, I don't see. I don't. I think there's okay. something different going on this time around than than there has than than what's happened over debates about U.S. foreign policy in the past, which is that. I don't know that they're listening or thinking in foreign policy terms at all about this. See, this is being mostly viewed as a direct extension of domestic politics this time. So I don't think there's a lot of sort of analysis about down the road. Well, what happens if if if, if Putin wins and then and then yeah and then and then uh, China takes Taiwan? Yeah, yeah, it probably ends. That that's enough. But the important thing. Is that we don't we stop as Christine says we stop spending money over there because we need it here. Yeah, I mean, um, there was a Fox poll that came out uh, just yesterday on uh, U.S. support of Ukraine against Russia. Fifty um, percent um, uh, of respondents said that a U.S. should support Ukraine as long as it takes to win. So that's kind of that's even more than Biden would say. <laughs> Biden just says we're going to support you as long as it takes. He leaves out the to win. Yeah. Uh, but that's a position that commands 50%. 46% said we should limit the time frame. So not cut off assistance, but at least uh, remember the timetables for withdrawal from Iraq uh, 15 years ago. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's divided, but there is still 50% uh, support 
for continued assistance to Ukraine. Now, and it's more than that. I mean, you could say there's 96% support for continued existence. Well, that's right. Exactly. Because it still the, means it's not a call yeah, for a cutoff. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it gets, it, again, it's hard to gauge these things. It's like when we talk about the blank check, but, you know, two thirds of Democrats favor sticking with Ukraine until it's victorious, according to the Fox poll. Uh, while most Republicans, 61% of Republicans opt for a time limit on U.S. support, independents are split. Uh, 49% are with the Republicans in terms of setting a time limit and 45% as long as it takes. And I think that, again, I, I, what, I'm not, I think for a certain sector of the Republican Party, especially the sector which is very active online, Abe is exactly right. Ukraine is viewed solely through the framework of contemporary uh, anti-woke politics and the fight over, you know, between woke progressives and nationalist conservatives. I think for most American people, they have an instinctive response to this situation. One, there's muscle memory. We, you know, the Russian government is bad. You know, it's been bad for a long time, whether it was under communists or whether it was under the czar or whether it's under Vladimir Putin. Um, So that's kind of an instinctual response. And then the second thing is, it's just, I mean, it's just common sense. You know, one huge country invades the other country unprovoked in order to dominate it. I think Americans have a uh, a sympathy for the little guy, especially if the little guy is trying to become a democracy and join the institutions of the West. This um, is this this is a really important point because I think this is where the populists are going to hit their head against the ceiling of support when it comes to foreign policy. Because I'm hearing over the last few weeks, especially Tucker Carlson, all these guys talking about globalist, globalist, globalist. That is something that resonates deeply and long has resonated deeply with with the extreme populist right. It's always been you know one of their it's what you know kind of critical race theory is to let. i mean there's this thing it's like you can't define it but we know it's terrible we shouldn't be doing this but i think matt's absolutely right it's not just muscle memory it's it's the kind of slackerish gen x of which i'm a part sort of remembering you know it, it, we do care about the little guy we do actually care about freedom russia is always bad and it, they're especially bad if they start aligning with countries like china who we also are suspicious of we don't uh, and saying, well, that's just a globalist enterprise does not resonate with even people who might find other aspects of the populist message appealing. I really, I have to believe, I have to have some faith in our uh, our sensibility as Americans and in our role of, of the world that that hasn't been so degraded by our politics in the last few decades that we can't see that okay. still. Go ahead. Just to finish, just to finish it, yeah. it, it, it up at the and, and to amplify what Christina's saying, the danger is if this just collapse, this falls into a war of attrition. And it just appears to be another low-intensity conflict that Putin has been masterful at managing in various places in the former Soviet Union over the past few years. At that point, I think Americans will kind of like, eh, what's going on there? They're just killing each other. What? Why are we paying attention to this? And this is precisely why Josh Rogan's column is important for uh, f- for people who care about Ukraine to pressure the administration to give the Ukrainians the tools to achieve advances on the battlefield, which would then, I think, boost the confidence of Americans that, yes, we are doing the right thing at no immediate risk to American forces. Right. right. Which, is, which is the most important point here, which is that not a single American has died in Ukraine. It's a year you know, we've spent a hundred and something billion dollars. We have gotten an enormous bang for that buck. Uh, people don't even understand how cheap that is in terms of retarding one of the, you know, worst countries in the world that 
that has long-term ambitions to degrade and destroy the Western alliance. And, uh, and at, at the cost of dollars and not personnel. Now, over time, that can be a problem if we don't spend the dollars to replenish our stocks of material. But nonetheless, uh, we are in a position where we can do this without putting Americans at risk. That's, you know, that's something that people just seem to be, it's like a, it's not a gift horse, but they are looking in the mouth, you know, but they the, are. But in the ideological war, which I think is yeah. is going on alongside this, there is the, the danger for those of us, and, and there, we exist along a spectrum, I mean, there's, you know, we're the, like, the neocon part of that spectrum, but there's, you know, plenty of moderate hawkish Democrats still around, and including even in the Biden administration, as we look at what they've done thus far. The danger in the in the ideological war, though, is the oh, this is just the same old neocon. We want to go fight foreign wars. I mean, that's that the traction of that message, which we right. heard all throughout, you know, Iraq, is coming back, and it's now being embraced a little bit by even there are hints of it with in DeSantis's recent well, remarks. We need about to Ukraine. talk about that. Yeah. I wanted to, I want to talk about that, and then this question of uh, where the temptations are for Republicans as we enter the second year. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about bambi uh our advertiser this week um you know small business owners have all kinds of challenges with hr issues what do employers have to do when remote workers move locations like if they you know move out of state and have to change their tax file you know their their tax filings how do we bring workforce back into office settings employee attendance issues how do you attract and keep top talent for small business at a time when there is real, you know, there is real competition for labor. So you better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So team members can reach peak performance. Your business stays compliant with changing regulations. And with Bambi's HR autopilot, you'll automate important human resources practices like setting policies, training, and feedback a personal hire full-time HR manager can easily cost 80 grand a year. Bambi starts at $99 per month. That's almost an 80th of what a staffer would cost you. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast. When you sign up, it'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E.com. Bambi.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. If you think back to 2019 and the Democratic, you know, clown show uh, when, that came uh, with the process of trying to nominate a candidate to take on, on Donald Trump, one of the highlights of the Biden run, with all of his deficiencies, his weird performances in the debates where he looked so exhausted and couldn't even finish a sentence and stuff like that, the thing that people kept pointing out was that Biden, unlike everybody else, was not in the thrall of the online conversation and that he had his plan. His plan was, I'm competent, not crazy. You know, I'm going to restore the presidency to a level of dignity is not lost before. And he wasn't going to get thrown off by conversations about busing. He wasn't going to get thrown off by what, what you know banning ar-15 you know he wasn't going to get cut he was going to follow his chart and not let twitter and twitter's daily hysterias force him into constantly responding to the issue of the hour 
Ron DeSantis is showing some signs and his team are showing some signs of being too online. And I, this is a thing that, that is interesting that the right is now uniquely susceptible to, as I say, Matt looked cites that poll, right? That Fox news poll that says 50% say win, you know, even though they don't say, but you know, 50% say let Ukraine win. 46% 46% say we need to limit the time here. If I look at that poll, I don't see isolationism in that poll. I see I see a kind of a spectrum of support for the effort in Ukraine that goes from yeah, I guess we should see what we can do to they must win, we must give whatever they want. But I don't see Cut them off. Josh Hawley, last week, in a speech about how we needed to be tough on China, said one of the things we need to do to be tough on China is to cut Ukraine off and dedicate those resources to fighting China. That speech, of course, is now already in the rearview mirror and basically disqualified or anachronistic because if China is throwing in its hand to some degree with Russia, then the notion that we need to cut Ukraine off to fight China makes absolutely no sense since China is now committing some of its prestige and and uh, efforts to establish itself as the dominant force in world geopolitics to the effort for Russia to win in Ukraine. Therefore, opposing Ukraine is opposing China, opposing Russia and Ukraine is opposing China, and so we shouldn't cut them off. But my point is that the loudest voices in the Republican Party, as somebody said, do not necessarily have the Republican electorate's support, but we don't know that. As a, A, they're not hearing from people that they trust that this is a noble and worthy and valuable effort very much. DeSantis has a team. It's a very small team. One of the key players on his team is, is Press Secretary Christina Pushaw. She is basically a Twitter person. And she, <clears throat> I believe, inside his camp, is the constant advocate for moving in the Twitter direction in on the right. So some of that is understandable. That's woke. You know, just you can't go wrong pushing anti-woke stuff because all Republicans hate woke stuff wherever you are. No one, no one is on this program. But then there's the NatConism. And then there's, you know, Compact Magazine. There's Josh Hawley. There's Rubio getting tempted by his, you know, uh, uh, somewhat pernicious chief of staff, Mike Needham, into this direction. And they they may be listening too much in the way that Biden spared himself. Right. And kept on a long-term course with a long-term vision about how to get the presidency, not just the nomination. Right. I don't know what that course is for DeSantis, and I don't think he does either as yet. So I don't have I I I can understand the temptation to just be in the conversation every single moment of every single day. But I don't think that that is a good sign about his independence of thought and his ability to focus on the long-term goal. 
you know, this is one way in which uh, another way in which the 2016 Republican primary really warped our understanding of the GOP and how politics worked. Because uh, if you look back in history, um, the talk radio candidate uh, loses the primary right <laughs> and, and and the talk radio candidate was able to command a certain amount of support may come in second place often uh but does not win right and uh in uh, 2008 for example john mccain was loathed by the talk radio uh group and it and yet was able to um kind of leverage his support for the surge in iraq into a run that gave him the nomination he is also of course the front runner he had been the runner up in 2000 and such but so okay in 2012 mitt romney kind of commanded part of the talk radio audience but he Not had really and i know exactly he had lost Not at all of, i would he say had, right he had lost by that point he had lost the golden boy yeah i'm the real conservative in the race uh role and so you saw kind of the opposition to romney flit about to other alternatives you know various people would have a little surge and then go down yeah uh, and romney still won Herman Cain to Gingrich to Santorum. Right, exactly. It kind and of Romney up. was there and right. never, he was like, at 30%, so what he people, just stayed there. Because of the revisionist history on the right, people now look back and think, well, in 2016, Trump was the talk radio candidate. Well, not really. Uh, if talk radio initially was kind of split on him because he was forcing this issue of what the Republican Party stood for, right? And there were other, there was plenty of talk radio hosts who did think that Ted Cruz was more authentic expression of movement conservatism. Um, and, and now, as Trump gained force and began his process of using his committed supporters to win um, pluralities of primary voters, which then turned into majorities of delegates because of the GOP winner take all system people are like people then rallied to his cause and and the Trump attitude is very I think um appropriate for the talk radio attitude because it's you know hit him hard and let's fight and man it's, I am pumped up and angry today right. but that does not mean that does not mean you can win even a Republican nomination from Tucker Carlson's show right it, you know we just don't know that that has not been tested. And I, I'm not I'm not sure it's a smart move to think that you can. Right. I, look, I think this is a, a, a very interesting uh, analysis because, you know, I know 10 d d talk show hosts in 2015, 2016, who were anti-Trump and were they either like Cruz, they like Rubio, they liked whoever they liked, but they thought that Trump was a disaster and they got scared spitless by the ferocity of the trump base's anger at anybody who questioned his uh viability and they got unnerved and the entire salem radio network got unnerved and you know commentary contributor michael medved was sort of driven out of salem because of this and you know hugh hewitt my friend hugh hewitt Flip flop, total, you know, like, I'm sorry, you know, he was in the against Trump issue of National Review. And then six months later, you know, if he wasn't wearing the red hat, he might have been wearing the, he might as well have been wearing the red hat. Like people in this industry, sort of like what happened with Fox in the Dominion lawsuit stuff that we saw last week after the 2020 election, they were scared by they were the first people to be scared into falling in line 
with okay, but, Trump. But the, all of this, I mean, we're when we're looking at the media, that's absolutely right. But I want to I, I think it's important to to think about this in, in terms of DeSantis world and whatever he's his ambitions are, because he's make he, the critical error he's making isn't kind of trying to thread the needle. They're all going to have to do that to some extent with Trump. It's it's misunderstanding that Trump never has a policy. He has an emotional reaction to things. So when he looks at Ukraine now, he says, OK, Biden and the Democrats are supporting sending money to Ukraine. I don't like Joe Biden. I don't like Democrats. Ukraine is bad. We're wasting our money. And that's, I don't that's like Trump's, Zelensky. And right, I don't like and Zelensky because right, he didn't he, do what I wanted but, him to do in 2019. DeSantis should not be reacting to that reaction. What right. he should be doing is saying, this is what we stand for. This is what the, and, and laying that out. He's not doing that. But he's right to say, look, he went on Fox and Friends and said Russia likely wouldn't have invaded if he didn't see the United States under Joe Biden as weak. That's absolutely true. We've said that many times. So some of what he's saying is actually traditional red meat normie conservatism. Yeah. But he's he's falling into the trap. And I agree with you, John, that he has a, a lot of two online people advising him. He's falling into this trap of reacting to the reaction that Trump has to things rather than charting his own course. And that it's very important that he chart his own course as to when he decides to announce, if he decides to announce, because other Republicans are doing that. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, they're doing the traditional, we stand for freedom, we should support Ukraine stuff. Not that that's going to get them anywhere in a primary, but we, but uh, it's disappointing to hear DeSantis speak about Ukraine the way he did this week, because that's not that's a that's a Trump reaction rather than a, I'm my own man, DeSantis looking forward. So I'm sorry to uh, reinject, yeah, crushing morosity uh, uh, into this, but please do. I, 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 I fully agree that the smart thing for DeSantis to do would be to chart his own course. That's something that distinguishes him from Trump here. Um, I am not wholly convinced that it is not much safer politically to allow the online hysteria to seep into your reality on the right today than it was yeah. on the left in 2019 2020 um i don't i don't know you could be right. I, I don't like well, it but i, I don't know that, that it's as unwise as i mean as, i think you're absolutely you right uh, in relation to a republican primary abe but the question is, you know, will what can you do that uh, allow it to dictate your, your 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 yeah well right, but and then that create right so the idea of the etch sketch but etch a sketch right, was bad exactly etch a sketch we well, should we have to explain, explain what etch a yeah. sketch was so uh, Romney runs in 2012 uh, and his communications advisor whose name I can't remember. Uh, gave an interview in which he said that however hard Romney had tacked to the right during the primaries, the general election afforded him the ability to take his positions and do what you do with an extra sketch, which is shake them, and then they disappear, and then you can reestablish new positions in the general election. And the reason I think that is bad for DeSantis is it was bad for Romney. I don't mean just it was a bad day-to-day -day story. It was, I don't have fixed opinions. I don't stand anywhere. I am the kind of person, therefore, who might, you know, like shut down a company and therefore, you know, kill people with cancer. Like, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm a, I'm not somebody you can take seriously when it comes to my views. GM should have gone bankrupt, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, okay. That was now. That right. was a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Here's here's what I want to bring up about DeSantis in this case in relation to this. I do not believe that his expression of his opinions about Ukraine this week are authentic. 
First of all, he sounded very unlike him. He was very unsure. His verbiage was weird. He said China when he meant Russia. He wasn't entirely prepared for the question he was asked on Fox and Friends, and he did not look comfortable. Now, fine, he's only been a domestic person when it comes to his governorship. But Ron DeSantis was in Fallujah in 2007. He was in the JAG Corps. He was at Gitmo. And then he went in with SEAL Team 1 into Fallujah as their on-site legal advisor on what they could and could not do in the most dangerous place on the planet Earth in furtherance of the American cause in Iraq. There are, there are a bunch of people who were in Iraq, who did stuff like this, who have since sort of joined the sort of anti-war, anti-American exceptionalism camp. But not that many of them. And I, watching him on that tape, I do not think that this is him. It may be Christina Pushaw. It may be, you know, other people in his ambit who, like, are... And granted, I mean, I don't think he he is not, like, a, a robot listening to his staff. Apparently, quite the opposite. Like, he doesn't really listen to hardly anybody but his wife, is what we hear. But he didn't spend five years in the U.S. military, you know, from Harvard, from, you know, like like you know going into the going into the jag corps in order to come out and be an isolationist 15 years later it just doesn't it doesn't feel real and that's bad in two ways one of which is you know i think he was right then and would be wrong now if he were opposing ukraine but even even if that's a minority opinion it doesn't matter you can't sacrifice your authenticity in your biography you, and 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 you cannot play games with like the thing you did that was the bravest thing that you did in the course of your entire life like the bravest the most noble the most self-sacrificing thing that you did and you're gonna like play footsie with the people who believe that what you did was useless and 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 pointless and immaterial and a waste of time eh, i don't know i i don't know i am only Posing this as a theory, A may be right, I may be wrong. I know, but but I agree with yeah. you. Okay. I agree with you. I, I, I have the exact same okay. uh, response. I think well, I said as much on uh, when uh, when we were texting. That's right. About you did. Yeah. And, and, the, but and I mean, then, I mean, you may be right that he he if they're reading the Republican Party the way that they're reading it, maybe they're right. If, if they are in fact doing that, maybe they're right, and we're wrong, and the Republican Party is essentially hurtling toward being a, a, an overtly isolationist force over the next year, year and a half. I mean, I think, the, you know, the, the issue is uh, it's hard to run as um, another Trump against Trump. And so, you know, you're better off just being your authentic self and uh, rather than trying to mimic the man himself. Uh, and because I think a lot of voters, you know, sure, we, we're reading all these reports, uh, people want to move on. And so, but, you know, I mean, on the debate stage, if someone is coming across as simply trying to mimic Trump and then there's Trump there, I think a lot of Republicans are just going to say, well, why not just go with the real deal? Yeah. 
You know, yeah. I mean, I, he's a lot. He's he's at the very least funnier than most of the competition. You yeah. know, more entertaining. So, yeah. What what is it <clears throat> about Nikki Haley that that sort of resists her getting into this conversation um, uh, uh, organically? Because she is the she has been saying uh, the things that we would want to hear on on Ukraine. Um, she is the, the, the clearest evidence that, that, that there's some voice out there, uh, that, that has not given in, um, entirely to the, to, to the isolationist, right? And yet she's she's not even coming up in this conversation. She's in an ideological Bermuda triangle because the people who hate Trump point to the fact that she worked for Trump. The people who, who love Trump point to the fact that she criticized Trump after she worked for Trump. And she's, she's she's not found a way out of that. She's also fighting the real enemy, Don Lemon. So she's spending. Yeah. She's, she's got her. Yeah. Her fire is concentrated on oh, Don Lemon right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, that was a gift to her campaign. To be honest, it kept her. It kept her announcement in the news uh, a couple cycles past. I think Don Lemon. Don Lemon is hideous and should not be allowed back on the air. And what he said was deeply sexist. And if if someone on the right had said that, they would have been fired. So he's terrible. But but it was good in a sense. It was good for her campaign yeah. to be able to tackle that without having brought it up herself. Because she's also look. She's a female candidate. She's a woman of color. This is not the typical Republican female you see. But actually, her resume is very deeply Republican female. So I think she's got to find a way to be, um, again, I keep saying normie conservative, but she's a normie conservative in the best sense. Like, get out there and be that person. But her, she's tainted by Trump, as so many are. I don't think that these ideas on the right are fixed at all. That's the point I want to go back to. Okay, go back to the Fox poll. The choice wasn't between not being involved in Ukraine and having Ukraine win. The choice was, do we need to limit our involvement in Ukraine and do we need to not limit our involvement in Ukraine? And if you add those up, it's almost 100% of the country says we should be involved in some fashion in Ukraine. That doesn't translate to me to the natcon what are we doing there and by the way zelensky didn't go after hunt you know didn't use his powers to provide trump with the material he wanted to get hunter biden the answers are all in the laptop from hell if we just go into the laptop from hell everything will be revealed it is the rosetta stone <laughs> it is it was the secret to the 2024 campaign we just yes. gotta get in there get in that laptop um anyway so everybody should have a wonderful weekend and enjoy yourself uh and not think about any of this except the fact that israel's about to go to war with iran and you should enjoy that as long as it you know as long as that takes uh or don't think about it just you know, there's no football, there's no foot baseball. I don't know what anyone's gonna, you know, do to enjoy themselves except see a movie called Cocaine Bear. So if you do that, let us know how you feel about it. We'll be back on Monday for Abe, Christine, and Matt. I'm John Pudhortz. Keep the candle burning.